Welcome to the uh, podcast for The Sugar Science. I'm Monica Wesley, the founder of The Sugar Science and your host for today's podcast with Dr. Giorgio Rimondi, PhD. He's the Associate Director of the VCA Lab. What does that mean? A VCA is a vascularized composite allotransplant. He'll talk to us a little bit about what that is. He mainly is overseeing immunological studies. He's an assistant professor at the John Hopkins School of Medicine, and he got his PhD in biotechnology from the University of Milan. Right now, he does about 90% research, and I'm interested in talking to him about this fascinating paper that just came out in August, um, his paper. And uh, the title of the paper is Multiphase Assembly of Small Molecule Microcrystalline Peptide Hydrogel Allows Immunomodulatory Combination Therapy for Long-Term Heart Transplant Survival. So we'll talk a little bit about that. Welcome. Giorgio, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Monica. Thank you for the invitation of being here. I'm really honored. Well, well we're honored to have you for sure. Um, so, uh, you know, we just wanted to, um, I just wanted you to give us a little bit of background about what you do um, at the VCA and, and what goes on there. Oh, sure, I'd be happy to do that. Um, so VCA, as you said, is a uh, this acronym for a vascularized composite allotransplantation, a big name for a type of transplant that we are interested in, which is the transplant of limbs, like hands or arms, or transplant of part of the face, that um, as a discipline, they can differentiate from uh, organ transplantation, which is the type of transplantation that everybody thinks about when we talk about transplantation. And uh, what we are studying is how the body responds to these type of transplants um, because of their different nature, not being a, an organ, but being a complex tissues. So like you can imagine that there is a bone, there is muscle, there is skin oftentimes. So it, it offers a, a very complicated structure that uh, we're trying to understand that if it's harder or potentially easier to try to manipulate the immune response, which is of course what I'm interested in particular as an immunologist in uh, modulating the, the, the response of rejection of transplants. So what I do applies in general, I believe applies in general to transplant rejection. So it's not specific for VCA, but we do have some projects where we're trying to look into the specific nature of this type of transplant. And, um, and that's pretty much what I research here at Hopkins in my lab. Uh, we are very interested in, in studying uh, uh, the regulatory mechanism that could be put in place um, for modulated immune response. And uh, we're trying different approaches. I'm uh, a strong supporter of uh, multidisciplinary approaches. Yes. Most of my projects are not by myself, but they are, uh, as the paper that you mentioned, uh, that you are interested in, to, uh, all those projects were born by trying to collaborate with people in uh, completely different disciplines which is not easy still, unfortunately, but yes. um, the idea is to try to merge and bring together what's out there and uh, put an effort so that we can have technologies that are in search for use to actually use them uh, and for, in our case, of course, giving a, a better life to transplant the patients. Yes. Well, we're, the Sugar Science is a huge supporter of collaborative efforts, and we really feel that um, scientists coming together from different disciplines will just add so much more richness to the conversation, the hypotheses, and ultimately the methodology of the research. Um, yeah. 
Okay, so can you just talk to us about how you became scientifically interested in immunology and I and, and biotechnology, I guess? <laughs> sure. Um, we're going back to my college time. I was lucky enough. So I was, as a kid, sort of, I was fascinated with the idea of being a scientist uh, pretty much from high school. Uh, I thought I was going to become a chemist, but then... Uh, um, they opened up this course at the University of Milan uh, on biotechnology and this idea of putting together genetic engineering and other approaches of modulating or modifying uh, gene expression uh, and so forth for benefit of either in industrial processes or for medical research. And uh, that got me very interested. So I attended that and I was lucky enough that I was exposed to immunological course-related, immunology-related courses, and I fell in love with immunology. I was like, this is fascinating. And uh, my thesis project for my college and my grad studies were in an immunological <clears throat> field, studying actually autoimmunity, mm -hmm. uh, basic of uh, an aspect of keratitis in a mouse model. Mm. And uh, um, that was really the forming process. And during that time, toward the end, uh, I was firmly convinced that I wanted to go outside of Italy for some experience uh, in doing research in other environment, of course, very prone to the idea of coming to the US. And when my mentor suggested as a potential topic, oh, there is autoimmunity, or there's this basic immunology, and then there is transplant immunology, and that got me interested. Because at the time, we were talking of early 2000s, um, we were already pretty advanced uh, in uh, uh, therapies uh, for uh, experimental therapies for studying transplantation and modulation of the rejection. But there was, I felt like there was still so much that needed to be learned, especially in that field. Then uh, I found it really intriguing because I, I realized, and it has been fortified with time, that what drive my commitment and interest in the research is mostly in finding uh, uh, ways to bring science to patients. I'm not a clinician. Of course, I remain, my patients are my animals in my models, but uh, I have a, a, my drive come from the idea that what I want to discover is something that can be applied in the clinic or tested either by us or someone else. And so transplant immunology became a, a very uh, good match for what I wanted to, to pursue. And that uh, and that's when I moved to, uh, I found a position as a postdoc at the University of Pittsburgh, which has ah. always been considered the, one of the epicenter of transplant-related research. Yes. And with the Starzl Center and uh, all the pioneering research that Starzl and people in the research center there did. And so I got um, exposed and nurtured there as a postdoc and uh, remained strongly active and focused on transplant immunology. Yeah, there's a lot of very interesting work going on at University of Pittsburgh, particularly in the bioelectronics space, as oh, yes. it pertains to um, autoimmunity and type 1 diabetes. Yeah, it's a really, it's a happening place. Yes, and honestly, it was pretty fortuitous that in my transplant-related studies, I, I intersect, intersected type 1 diabetes just by chance. Yeah. And so we do have some interest in the multidisciplinary approach that we were talking before. Yeah. I've always been interested in what can 
what is learned from autoimmunity and cancer. Because of course in cancer, from cancer we want to do exactly the opposite of what happens in cancer. So trying always to flip that around, but in autoimmunity we can uh, probably learn a lot of things and us can hopefully provide useful uh, resources or strategies for autoimmunity as well. Yeah, that's really uh, what Bart Rope at City of Hope in Los Angeles is promoting. They've got a, law, a strong alignment and relationship with the cancer therapy uh, research uh, at City of Hope, and they're they're yeah. they're trying to cross pollinate each other. So yeah, I totally agree with that too. Yeah, I listened to your interview with him. It was fascinating. Yeah, <laughs> I loved it. Oh, good. I'm glad. Um, yeah, he's amazing. He's an amazing person. What are your thoughts um, about the work being done in your field currently that might have impact on autoimmunity and type one diabetes in the mm -hmm. transplant world? Oh boy. <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm sure I'm gonna miss things, but <laughs> no. Um, I would. There, there is a lot of different avenues that are being explored in transplantation that I think could uh, be relatable and applicable for uh, autoimmunity. I would say, for sure, one of the biggest uh, and hottest topic uh, remains cell therapy, cell-based therapy. Mm. Um, it's funny because I've seen the transition, the evolution from when I was a postdoc and we will suggest, how about cell therapy with something? And they would be like, no, industry will never take it over. It's too expensive. It's too difficult. And, um, and now they have embraced it. And uh, so there are a multitude of different approaches of cell therapy. Um, I am biased a little bit because my mentor at the time in Pittsburgh and others that I know we're really focused on the idea of using uh, antigen-presenting cells, so in particular dendritic cells, for, the, for cell therapy. And uh, I still feel like it's, it's a very interesting approach that it's not as mainstream, but it has a, a great capacity because if you think about it, antigen-presenting cells can modulate the interaction with T cells and B cells and so forth, and uh, could be a pretty powerful system once they figure out the, the really um, reliable systems to apply clinically and it's moving in the clinic and there is a lot of, of that going back to the idea of cancer and so forth and cancer for vaccination using that as well dc therapy as being yeah. explored, especially in pittsburgh um then uh, of course who, who in pittsburgh is doing that well for That's transplantation it's my my mentor together with uh, a couple of other collaborators there so at the starsell institute there is angus thompson mm -hmm. and then i know that I think last year they have started a, a clinical trial, so they're really moving forward into the clinic with this. Um, we friendly call it the DC reg therapy. Yeah. Um, this idea that if we pharmacologically modify dendritic cells to preserve them into an immature state, that will promote the uh, conversion of, in our case, alloreactive, so T cells that are reactive to a transplant, um, into a non-functional state or even regulatory type of cells. And uh, so him, but there's support of the whole Starsell Institute. So there is the director of Fadilakis and the clinicians there um, that are in, in this very big efforts of putting it forward. And yeah. uh, we're really looking into um, seeing some of the results that might come out of that. And then of course, everybody talks about T-REC therapy, the use of regulatory T-cells. That was actually, during my postdoc, I was studying something like that. I was very interested in the idea of 
enriching advantages specific Treg. I mean, Treg that would be specific for what antigens that are expressed by the transplant mm -hmm. and using that as a therapy. So, of course, I was not the first, I was not the only one, but um, there has been so many different approaches and uh, it's fascinating to see how far we have come and there are so many clinical trials. It seems to be promising for graft versus disease, the idea of using uh, what we call the polychronal um, or endogenous um, ex vivo expanded Treg. Um, I, I'm blanking on the name of the clinicians, but there is the group of Bruce Blazer in Minnesota that has been one of the uh, pioneers in that. And uh, when, of course, people at Harvard and so forth too. And, um, and then moving, of course, in the idea of the CAR T-Reg, that it's what is revolutionizing uh, now the field that, that it's been applied for uh, transplantation. Uh, um, there is, uh, of course, there's Megan Levins in Vancouver, and she's the pioneer for the use of CAR-T-REG idea for uh, transplantation. And uh, I know that this year they are starting uh, one or more clinical trials to start assessing the feasibility of CAR-T-REG therapy for organ transplantation, which I think is going to be tested in Europe. Mm. And um, so there is that in terms of sub-therapy and uh, the idea, and there are some interesting, of course, as we were talking about multidisciplinary approaches, I'm very intrigued. I remember hearing uh, something about from MIT, from the group of Daryl Irvine, uh, this idea of the supercharge, I think they were calling it, uh, supercharged Treg, the idea of coating Treg with particles that will give them IL-2, so that once they are in, infused, uh, they, they keep expanding for a while, for the time that these particles uh, provide interleukin 2, which is a fascinating uh, approach and really yeah. curious to see how that is going to pan out. It's, who, it's, is, who is doing that? Did you? Uh, it's Daryl Irvine and MIT together, I think, with uh, the group of Jamil Atzi at Harvard, okay. uh, the Brigham, I think. can't remember. I think it's... Yeah, I'll look, uh, I'll look that up. That's very interesting, too. I'm really interested in that idea. Super yeah, nice it's fascinating. And, and then moving away from therapy, but staying in the area of Treg, because the problem with the cell therapy is the cost, right? Yeah. We think yep. that, yes, now we have the know-how to do GMP facility, produce the cells, reproducibility and consistency of batches, it's still an issue, uh, especially if we're talking of Treg, um, but the cost is gonna be the major issue. So for yeah. proof of principle studies, yes, centers are gonna absorb the cost, but how are we gonna make this Mainstream, it still remains a big question mark. Um, it's my, yeah, it's my understanding. Well, I mean, I think a lot of these discoveries are so incredible, right? But then it's like, yes. how do you scale them? How do these get scaled? And it turns out that we've been talking to uh, Elliot Botvinick, who's down at UC Irvine. This is just an amazing scientist, bioengineer. He's, he's, he's really interested in that question or really that problem how to scale and they are mm -hmm. developing a whole um group down there to help scientists really kind of scale so they you know i think scientists are starting to really move into that space yeah i i, I agree it's funny because i remember clearly when i was at college one of my professors saying uh, yeah you can make this amazing therapy but if it's gonna cost multiple million dollars to treat one patient Who's going to use it? It's fascinating from the scientific perspective, but let's be practical. 
uh, I remember that month I've been there, but, uh, but yes, it, it's definitely, scientists are more aware of that. I see that actually more often in the um, reviewer comments for grant proposals or papers and say, can you put this in context? How is this gonna be scalable or really translatable? And uh, I think uh, it's getting more in the back of the head of people uh, when they approach projects. It's not maybe mainstream because it's still not in our training uh, as scientists. Um, which is probably a good or a bad thing, depending on the perspective. Yeah. But, but yeah, scalability and practical aspects, um, it's, it's maybe an issue. And, and going back to your, your question, so this idea that maybe we don't need to expand T-Reg to infuse them, but we can target them directly in the patients might be a more practical approach. So I think we and I know it's pursued quite a bit in transplantation. I believe, of course, for type 1 diabetes it's as well. Uh, this whole idea starting with the idea of interleukin 2, as we were talking about the supercharged T-Reg, but the original uh, exploration of low-dose IL-2, and then, of course, it's mm -hmm. difficult for the clinic, but um, this whole idea of, uh, like, this idea of the immunocomplex, for example, the IL-2, anti-IL-2 antibody that, um, Jonathan Sprint many years ago uh, discovered that that can selectively direct IL-2 to CD25 expressing cells, which normally would be Treg, and so being a more targeted approach, and then inspiring a bunch of studies. I know very recently, actually, we had a publication from uh, uh, Mark Gavin. Uh, I, um, uh, where is he? I, I think uh, Wash U. Um, or affiliate, yeah. because I think he's also working in a company, and uh, this idea of the IL-2 muting, uh, so mutating the IL-2, so we are in the area of protein engineering here, so mutating the cytokine itself so that it can interact more specifically with Tregs. Uh, it just came out in a paper, I think, uh, uh, a month ago, or something like that. And, I'll look uh, for that. That's really it's, good. It's a fascinating uh, approach. We're we are working on that. I have a collaborator here, which is collaborated that studied the idea of the IL-2 anti-IL-2 complex and uh, she is interested as a protein engineer in uh, making these fusion proteins so that the IL-2 cannot really get away from the antibody with the risk of then stimulating non ranks. So we are pursuing the idea of using that in our transplant application possibly. Hmm, that's so, neat. Yeah, I mean, these, all this cross, as I said before, all this cross pollination, I think is, is really important. Um, and, you know, like, in the, in the T1D space, in the anti, I mean, autoimmune uh, diabetes space, you know, the, they did have some results recently of uh, teflumazab, uh, the anti CD3, you know, that's <laughs> the, um, um, the FCR non-binding anti-CD3 monoclonal antibody, Kevin Harold was in, yeah. involved in that in Benaroya Institute. They have some, they had some results with people that uh, when they took that, mm -hmm. you know, just for a short period of time, they were able to get into remission. So that's kind of exciting. So, so these whole, these ideas of <clears throat> um, specifically targeting, you know, the pieces of the, um, I guess you could call it the bad ballet of autoimmunity. Right? Yeah. Could be, um, I mean, it just has to be dissected one, one, one step at a time. 
What about, what do you think, uh, what can you share your, so we just talked a little bit about your lab. What do you, can you share exciting new work that you're doing in your lab um, and maybe talk a little bit about this uh, great paper you guys published? Oh, sure. I'd be happy to. Um, <clears throat> so the way we got interested, so <laughs> it's funny, I, I still remember clearly we were talking about me getting interested in transplant immunology, but in 2003, there was this paper by Raslan Metitov in Science that was showing that, yes, Treg, a fantastic regulator of T-cell activation and proliferation, but the moment that you put them together with an inflammatory milieu, you lose Treg activity. So Treg not acting when, or not that well when there is a strongly inflammatory environment. And that got me interested in this idea of studying how inflammation modulates the dynamics of the immune system during transplant rejection, and uh, and what we can what can we do about that? And uh, and in the field, uh, one of the driving force for therapy, as we mentioned, has been uh, the so-called concept of co-stimulation blockade. So the idea of belatacept or abatacept, the principle that if you block this so-called signal 2 in the activation of T-cells, you promote their conversion into non-functional or even regulatory potential, uh, potentially cells. But we knew from both broadened studies and the attempt to move that to the clinic where we lost an important partner for the latter in transplantation, uh, the idea that we can probably modulate the immune response if we target with the latter the CD28, B71, B72, or CD8, B86 pathway, but that's not sufficient on its own. You need an additional component to that. At the time, it was the CD40, CD154 pathway, and when using combination, we're talking about the early 90s, that was a powerful way to modulate the immune response, but mm -hmm. uh, the translation of the blocking CD40, CD154 pathway got really behind because they had major issues. Mm -hmm. uh, safety of the patient yeah and so we were interested in this idea could be inflammation the thing that makes uh co-stimulation blockade uh, not fully effective and can we do something about that but the idea that we were really after was uh yes it's fascinating the idea of dissecting and going after specific players but inflammation is such a big and broad concept. There are so many inflammatory cytokines, so many stimulus that can create that. And so the idea was, can we find ways to potentially block classes of cytokines um, in one way, either in the signaling or in their production? Uh, and would this pair well uh, with stimulation blockade with the latacet or abatacet? Right. And um, that's how we got started in uh, this idea, okay, um, what can we study? And, uh, uh, tofacitinib as a JAK inhibitor, so the idea that we would block the signaling uh, of the cytokines that signal through the JAK start pathway, we start testing it together with uh, um, set in our transplant uh, heart transplant model. And uh, it turned out that, uh, again, our idea was we don't want to give you this treatment for a prolonged period of time. We want to see, can we really impact the immune system? Of course, it's probably not going to be a, an indefinite effect, but can we impactfully um, mod modulate the immune response? So then maybe you just need to intervene very uh, seldomly over, over time in the patient. And, uh, and the results uh, indicated that. And, 
the idea is really to provide tofacitinib during the time that we give ctf 4 ig so abatacept, and uh, not any much longer than that, because by the way, tofacitinib, uh, the problem in general is that it was tested uh, as an immunosuppressive drug uh -huh. for the treatment of transplant uh, patients, but uh, the trials were suspended after some observation of risk of higher risk of infection and uh, post-transplant lymphoproliferative disease, PTLD, and, uh, and so they decided to stop it. The point that we put forward uh, in general is we don't want to give tofacitinib for the rest of the life. It's not an, a substitute to the current immunosuppressive agents that are given to patients. We just want to use it together with CTLA4A gene. Almost like a reset. You're almost like trying to press a reset button. Yeah, yeah. Or pretending that we're giving the impression that the environment, it's not inflamed. Everything's okay here. Yes. <laughs> Don't come over here. Yes, we're dragging you a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> Pretend that you are not in an inflamed environment, so you should actually listen to Abatacept and the, the signal that it gives you. That's the principle that, and in parallel to studying that as a free drug, we pair up with a group of uh, George Schneider at the NCI um, because he was uh, the one that uh, we had interaction before with him, but with this idea of potentially building uh, this depot of tofacitinib uh, that will be potentially acting locally because the other point to also convince people of course we don't want to necessarily go after tofacitinib but we are saying this is the principle that maybe other people can play around with but give it a jack inhibitor in a localized fashion so that it doesn't go systemically and we reduce the potential side effect even though we're not even giving it for that long of a period and so this whole idea of using injectable hydrogel, which is what um, the group of George Schneider um, has been uh, uh, pioneering for a while now. So many groups working with the hydrogels, but as far as I know, John uh, is the one that found a way of using peptides of specific combinations to create these gels that are injectable. And after they're injected, they do gelate. And, uh, and stay in place, and they are uh, uh, fairly biocompatible. So this doesn't create a solid structure, it remains very soft, and uh, it's actually funny because if you go and analyze it afterwards, you see an infiltrate, especially on macrophages, that they go around. But uh, no sign of, as you were talking before, about the fibrosis, uh, fibrosis issues, because of course they get degraded. Macrophages, we think they go there and they start chewing them up. Huh. And, uh, and so, in a, of course, they can be designed to be more or less resistant to that, but uh, the idea is that they remain biocompatible. And, uh, and for us, the idea was, anyway, we want them to be present for a period of time and it's in the order of a couple of weeks and not that much longer so that we sustain, as we were saying, we create simulate an environment and it's not inflamed anymore, but right. just locally. Right. And so the idea of distributing this hydrogel around the area of where we put the transplant. Then in our case, it was a heart transplant. Uh, and so the idea of putting the transplant there and then uh, filling the area remaining around it with, uh, with this hydrogel and creating these pockets of drug release while we still give abatacept in our patient. Because abatacept, it's used in the clinic currently. Uh, might not be the most favorite our Bilatacet also in there for transplantation. It's not the favorite for transplantation. They realize that it needs to be paired with other things. And it's used as immunosuppressive, not as a tolerance 
uh, or immunomodulating agent uh, as it was desired at the beginning. But we hope that with this approach, we can rebring back the idea of using abatacept or belatacept as immunomodulatory strategy because of the environment that we create. Let me ask you, so when you, this, this was very curious when you just were talking about this, when you talk about you inject the, you know, the crystalline structure and then it becomes this gel, hydrogel, and you know, where, what, what's the location there, in, in, I guess, in terms of the heart? Is it, I mean, the heart's beating, so is it, is it just surrounding it, or I mean, is it in the pericardial space, or where is it? So in, in our mouse model, uh, um, we have the opportunity of doing a, a heterologous transplant, so we don't replace the, the heart itself of the mouse. And so we put the second transplant, it's either in the neck, mm. um, there is a, a specific way of connecting it, and so it's not life-supported. Uh, it has circulation going through it. It's not probably the best model for a, a real transplant of a heart. And so it would be either in the neck or in the abdominal cavity. That's the most common one. And so the idea is after you place the transplant there, we just squirt the gel around it and it remains localized there. And uh, being, as you said, the heart beating, it's not constricting in any way. It's still a gel, so it allows, and plus the, the amount that we put, it's, uh, it's very small. But mm. uh, the idea is around the transplant. And so one, one thing, one idea that we're playing with is in the clinic, of course, you might not have that much of a confined space. Um, by the way, of course, for type one diabetes and eyelid transplant, you might have a, a very confined space for the eyelids and mm -hmm. so that's the advantages. But for other transplant, we're thinking of the idea of modifying the hydrogel to make it more, let's say, stickier, so they will adhere on the outside um, of the transplant and still being producing and releasing uh, the drug uh, just locally yeah. there. Yeah, and when you talk about an eyelid transplant, then yeah, you could definitely decide where you're going to put it and you would have sort of a little uh, safe space where you could right. have this hydrogel. They're doing that. But um, I do wonder about your thoughts, hypotheses on whether or not you could, um, you know, what, what would happen if you added this composite to... Uh, a nearby place in a in a in an organ you know like a nod mouse and eyelids that are already under attack and mm. then you had it you injected this um into i don't know splenic vein or something or something nearby um i wonder what the impact would be if well that's something that we are thinking about there's a part of the project that i'm more than happy to talk about but um point there is that, so in transplantation, we have an advantage. That is, we know when we put the antigen load, right? We put a transplant in, that's our day zero. We know that from that moment on, there is an invasion of the antigens and diffusion of the antigens that come from the transplant. And so that's an advantage point over a disease, like an autoimmune disease that developed over a long period of time. Mm -hmm. And so I believe that's one of the strength of using co-stimulation blockade as an approach because you can really tailor the efficacy of co-stimulation blockade to the time of maximal exposure to antigens of the transplant and that way ideally is the moment where you have activation of the immune system at the peak 
which is different, of course, for autoimmune disease, where uh, I honestly see this as potentially applicable uh, in a context of what is called the antigen-specific immunotherapy. So some people will call it vaccination uh, mm -hmm. or negative vaccination. Uh, yeah, and, edited uh, vaccination. Correct. And so the, the idea then, then uh, maybe in that case, you're reproducing the situation that we have in transplant. And uh, you have a load of antigen and you create the conditions that maximize the conversion of cells into a non-functional or functional state um, as a regulatory one, for example. And that's what I, I see mostly what we're learning from transplantation to apply for type 1 diabetes, because you're right. I mean, yes, we could have the transplant of islands for people that are already in need for them, because of course, it's my understanding also, of course, in type 1 diabetes, there's this now much deeper understanding that we have dif different stages of development of the True. disease where exactly. we should intervene. And probably the intervention is going to be different depending on the stage that we are at. Yes. And so you're absolutely right. And we do have some transplant uh, investigators that are looking at the idea of what happens when you have a concomitant autoimmune and allo reactivity. So both the response against the self-antigen still expressed by the transplant and the transplant antigen themselves. Um, we know that inducing transplant tolerance in NOD mice, it's harder. We don't know yet if it's because of the autoimmunity or because of the predisposition of those mice to build stronger immune uh, reactions, for example, that I think it's my understanding it's still not fully clarified. That's one of the things that what I said and that was kind of Incidentally, we got interested in type 1 diabetes and in studying inflammation. Uh, one thing that I'm very interested in too is this idea of the efficacy of interleukin 10 yeah. as an inflammatory agent. Mm -hmm. And one thing uh, that uh, we were fascinated in, uh, to find uh, very coincidentally was um, this idea that uh, when you have a strong inflammatory response, then uh, T cells and maybe other cells lose their ability to respond to interleukin 10. And when we're looking for other people that might have characterized these characteristics, um, we didn't find it, but we found the initial paper from, I think it was Horowitz. I can't remember exactly. I need to dig it out. Um, but This is like you're talking about T-cell fatigue? No, I'm talking actually um, the interferon response. So people identifying, and it has been multiple, but showing that in NOD mice, for example, okay. T cells that are in the pancreatic lymph node show um, a type 1 response, type okay. 1 interferon signature. Okay. And, uh, and we start looking into those um, T cells for are they responsive to IL-10 or not? And that's our paper that came out a couple of years ago uh, showing that, in fact, and it's not just in the pancreatic lymph node, but also in the mesenteric lymph node, so there must be some association with the gut. Um, there oh, yes. is a massive production of type 1 interferon in NOD mice that it's not present in other strains that are resistant to type 1 diabetes. We are not saying that's the reason, but we, we think it contributes. And it's um, in that type 1 interferon signature, there is this reduced capacity to listen to IL-10. Hmm. And so that's how we got interested in, uh, in looking also at the conditions in type 1 diabetes. So we're still interested because, of course, tofacitinib, like other JAK inhibitors, will inhibit type 1 interference. 
And so we're very interested in that idea and uh, uh, the possibility to take advantage, depending on where we are, of course, as we were saying. And I know I'm digressing. There are so no, many it's great. <laughs> this is fantastic. <clears throat> this is a really interesting conversation for sure. And I love that you're coming at it from the, the fact that you're looking at transplantation, but that you have a very strong immunology background. I think the, you know, the way you're, you're coming at it can, can kind of uh, shine a light on, on, on different um, aspects um, of the immune system that maybe people don't always think about when they're just thinking about type 1 diabetes. I'm, I'm a strong believer of that, and I'm learning so much from uh, the other field, too. It was one thing that I really appreciated. And I, I, please tell me if I'm jumping around here and there. No. But, um, we got funded from the GDRF at a certain point. The GDRF uh, decided to, that you need a fresh blood, I guess, a new yeah. idea. No, that's they fantastic. That, yeah, and they started that initiative, I can't remember, it was four or five years ago, of... Uh, expanding and, and saying we want to have new people in uh, uh, different background coming into diabetes and so we put in uh, our idea we actually got two two grants there one was to study this idea of the IL-10 and type 1 interferon and how that could be um, contributing to the development of the disease but the other was this idea of using uh, JAK inhibitors which we're not the first one there have been a couple of papers published so showing that JAK inhibitors could be useful in the NOD or other models, but you really wanted to understand how that will work. And, um, and so, again, this idea of using material science for delivering JAK inhibitors, and honestly, what, going back to your question of, of projects that are ongoing in the lab, one yeah. thing that we're working on, we hope we're working on a manuscript to send out soon, is this idea of using uh, um, an unusual type of particles, these are not polymeric particles that most of the people use, but they're called lipid nanoparticles. Mm -hmm. These are not liposomes. These are really like, we like to, uh, my collaborator, <laughs> this is uh, at the Applied Physics Labs at Johns Hopkins, and uh, they study these lipid particles that are made, practically it's like thinking of them as wax particles. Right. They can be either solid or semi-solid, uh, depending on temperature. And uh, the fantastic thing that we're seeing is that we can give these particles where they figure out a way to load them with tofacitinib or other JAK inhibitors, and we can give them orally. And the part of those get absorbed, and uh, for natural properties of the particles, they get into the lymphatics rather than the circulation. Right, because they're fat. And that drives them uh, directly to the lymph nodes that we think uh, might be the key point for the development of type 1 diabetes. Of course, again, we're not the expert in type 1 diabetes here, but, but we do see that uh, when we administer this particle for a short period of time, we can delay the onset of diabetes in NOD mice. Um, just for people to be ready for that paper whenever we're Yeah, <laughs> no, that's fantastic. That's but, really interesting. And you know, that's because, I mean, also, if you want to think about once people have gone into uh, type 1 diabetes, you know, they usually have a biomarker, one, two, three, and then they have diagnosis. And th th what's so interesting is after diagnosis, after the blood sugars have been brought down in the hospital, usually they enter with DKA and they, then they bring down the, the blood sugars. Then, of course, the patient goes into, most patients go into this honeymoon period where the pancreas starts to function again. 
And then, of course, the sad, you know, uh, the cruel, uh, <laughs> this the cruel ending is that the, the the immune system wakes up, the, the the memory cells that are present in the lymph nodes wake up, and then they're coming back to shut down the the eyelids. Um, it would be curious, wouldn't it, if you were to get people right at the time of diagnosis, so as they enter into their honeymoon period, and then be able to shut down those memory cells as they come out of the blocks with this lipid situ- lipid nanoparticles. Uh, yeah, we need to test it. I'm very intrigued by the idea of testing Jack inhibitors in general for the modulation of memory cells. We didn't talk about that, but that's another thing that in transplantation we're also very interested in to it's a big barrier for uh, immunotherapies for transplantation. It's the pre-existing memory um, that is a very difficult beast to deal with and uh, just clinically. Conventional immunosuppression doesn't work for people that, as we call them, are sensitized um, to our transplants. So you need mm-hmm. to use these much heavier protocols for those people uh, um, to try to control the immune response. And there is a lot of investigation. We, we're not doing it much here in my lab, but of course I'm monitoring colleagues that are very interested in the idea, can we modulate the memory T cells and memory B cells uh, in, the, in their function so then uh, we can uh, better control the rejection or even of course prevent that response. And of course, it would be very interesting to see if knowledge from there or from the other fields, of course, um, the memory T cell field that has exploded with the, with the resident memory cells and so forth. And fascinating in the metabolism of the cells and the memory are different. Um, trying to figure out ways to definitely target the memory response and bring the patient back. back. I, I agree, it would be an important point. Um, we need to get those memory cells Alzheimer's. <laughs> that's right we either give them Alzheimer or find a way to selectively get rid of them or revert them back yeah that would be a, a fascinating approach. how can we reschool these memory cells god well this is I mean this has been so fascinating Giorgio thank you so much I really enjoyed talking to your wealth of information and um, it sounds like you have some really interesting um, you know, work coming out soon. I'm going to be looking for that. We'll be looking for it. And um, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? Uh, well, first of all, thank you again for uh, having me on uh, on this podcast. Uh, I really hope, I, I really love the initiative that uh, you are undertaking this idea that we do, I agree, we do need to talk more as a scientist, but not just talking, really putting in, in practice uh, our different approaches, comparing, finding ways to go beyond our egos and our needs for our personal career <laughs> promotions and support, of course. But uh, truly collaborating, uh, it's going to be very, very important. I really hope that your initiative and others are going to stimulate even more. And uh, I really encourage people to look and not be a, not afraid, but at least to initiate more conversation. Uh, I think that's the principle that I've seen in more conferences and small conferences to be truly honest and going beyond publication and say, show me unpublished data, tell me what you're doing. I know there's an issue of IP there, of course, and that's the other side of the coin that probably we need to train better the scientists not to be so suspicious about IPs, about 
industry because uh, we're not going to have time to talk about this, but there is still a big gap on uh, how move how we can move things to, to the clinic. Um, yes, of course, it can be driven quite a bit by doctors, by the physicians, but a lot of the time, the only way that I've seen uh, um, research uh, moving to the clinic has been uh, with the legwork of the scientists themselves, which is what we in Academic Center we rely on, and the API needs to become an entrepreneur, and uh, we're not trained for that. <laughs> yes, I totally agree. There and needs to be some kind of <clears throat> support network for, and not just the VC, but some kind of internal network for scientists where they can um, learn how to scale, learn how to partner, and we're hoping to provide some conduits to that, some connections to industry and uh, we, we're going to be hosting this whole off the record symposia panel where scientists get together they talk off the record and we just showcase like who was there what did they talk about you know and what were some key terms from this discussion and then let other scientists reach out you know they're not going to we're not going to you know because of ip concerns we're not going to be just saying showing everything that was said but if you, you think that's an interesting topic and you saw that someone who was on there that's interests you, reach out to them. Yeah, yeah. It's, I think it's a great initiative. And I think that's where we're going to be able to make progress much faster. Well, thank you again for your support and for talking to us. We greatly appreciate it. Wish, wish you all the best. We'll be looking for your next paper. Oh, thank you. And all the best to you for your initiative. Thank you again. Thank you.